so here in Titus 1, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. Now the word, the term set in order um, in the Greek is actually the word ortho. And before that is epi, dia, ortho. And of course we get the word orthodontus from it. To straighten the teeth, to line them up. And so in actuality Paul is using some pretty strong language here. He's saying the church is, it's like teeth that are out of order. Teeth that are being bent and, and sticking out. And, and he's saying the church is like that. And I need you to go down there and put some braces on it. <laughs> I need you to go down there and, you know, pull a couple teeth and, and do what you need to do to get things lined up and set in order in this place. And there again, he has another very strong word, those things that are lacking. So the church in Crete, it was out of order. It wasn't lined up in doctrine. It wasn't lined up in character. It was not lined up in practice of a godly way, the way things were supposed to be running. And uh, Paul says, Titus, this is why I sent you down there to get the things that are out of order back in order and the things that are lacking. Again, uh, the teaching was lacking. As we'll discover as we go on in the book, there was no submission to the leadership they had. And uh, again, that was greatly lacking. When did the church in Crete begin again? We don't know. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts uh, as one of the places that Paul went and preached the gospel to. But we do know on the day of Pentecost, it was listed in Acts 2 verse 11, it was listed in the long list of people of all the different tongues and languages of, of men. It said the Cretans and then the Arabs heard them speaking in tongues and wonderful works of God. So, They weren't necessarily in the upper room, but they were there hearing those who had been baptized in the Spirit, and then they were the ones along with others who said, what meaneth this? And then they were pierced to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? And so, no doubt, some of these Cretans, on the very first day Christianity was ever preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, had come to Christ. Now remember, it was during the time of Passover. And then 50 days later, you have Pentecost. And so many of the people who came around the world who had maybe come to Jerusalem one time in their life to have Passover in Jerusalem, uh, the Jews, when they have their Passover meal, they always end by saying, next year in Jerusalem. And of course, they don't always make it the next year, but that's what they always say in hopes one day they'll be able to have Passover in Jerusalem. So these Cretans, maybe the first time, the last time in their life, maybe they did it yearly, maybe they had done it uh, five years earlier, but they were there on the day that Peter preached and 3,000 souls were saved. No doubt some of them were from Crete. And now with the little bit of doctrine they had, maybe they sat under Peter's preaching for a week, a month, We don't know how long they were there and discipled, but when they went and took back the gospel of Jesus, there were things that were doctrinally needed to be known, character that needed to be exampled and amplified in their life that was lacking. And the one thing that they didn't have 
was leaders in the church to help lead them in doctrine and to be an example. And so, after telling them to put things in order, then he says, to appoint elders. And notice, every city as I commanded you. So, Titus was not just a pastor of one church, but he was a pastor of many churches on the island of Crete. Again, 160 miles long, anywhere from 7 miles to 35 miles wide. And so it would have been a very populous place. And you can go back in in history, and uh, we have even in the United States the circuit rider preachers where they would go to all the little towns and and, uh, the community would show up whenever the pastor showed up. And he would just travel around and hit a whole circuit of of churches, and he was the pastor of all those churches. And uh, it's actually not an uncommon thing to this day in many countries where they're lacking... uh, pastors and leaders and elders. So I need you as the overseer of the whole island of Crete there, and no doubt there would have been a a substantial amount of Christians there for uh, Paul to have sent Titus there uh, to use him in that way. Titus, again, his true son in the faith. He's not going to use him for uh, a couple of Christians on the island. Uh, There's a number of churches and a number of believers in each of those churches. And I need you to go and I need you to put Elders, the word is presbyteros. Uh, we get our word presbytery from it. It's actually the word presbus, P-R-E-S, and then bus, B-U-S. It's actually the word elder, if you were talking about an older person. And so it literally just means an elderly person. But it's not necessarily referring to age. It's talking immaturity. So somebody who's an elder in maturity in the Lord, somebody who has some experience as a Christian and some time having grown in the Lord. And then the next thing he says here is, um, let's see what the exact word in this constant translation is. Um, For this reason I left you in Crete that you said in order elders in every city as I commanded you. And again, down in verse seven, there it is. For a, a bishop, and he uses the next word there, uh, which is episkopos, which is overseer. And these two terms, some people really get up in arms and try to split hairs on what an elder is versus what a bishop is. But these terms are definitely used interchangeably, and uh, they're used in a generic sense for leaders. But there are three words that are typically used. One's elder, one's bishop, and one's pastor. The word elder, I think, refers to the man. That his character is of a mature nature in the Lord. The word bishop, overseer, is talking about the ministry. To oversee the condition of the sheep. To see that their condition is strong. That they're getting to the green grass and by the still waters. And then the pastor is the method. A pastor, again, is a shepherd. What's a shepherd do? He feeds the sheep. And so, as a pastor, if you look in Ephesians, as pastor-teacher. So it's always one and the same. You're not a pastor unless you're teaching the sheep, feeding the sheep. But who is a pastor? He is an overseer. And also, in character, he's an elder. He's one who has of a mature nature and would be a good example to the believers. And so... 
he now gives a list. And this is very similar. If you've been with us in 1 Timothy 3, you uh, went through a number of these things on the list. But here in Titus 1.6, it says, So, if a man, referring to the bishop, the elder, the pastor, is blameless. Some translations say above reproach. The word literally means nothing to take a hold upon. That he's blameless. There's nothing to take a hold upon him. Or then if he's over the church, that would nothing to take upon hold upon the, the ministry. Um, we had one, one of our elders years ago who was, had matured in the Lord and uh, wanted to be an elder in the church and he began to teach the word of God. And, and so I sat down and talked to him. He'd been with us for a number of years and I asked him this. I said, so is there anything that would, we would be surprised at a year from now, six months from now, all of a sudden to take hold of, of you? And he said, well, actually, you know, before I was a Christian a few years back, um, I basically ran up a tab in almost every bar in town. And so I owe $1,000 to this bar, 2000 to that bar, 200 to that bar. And I, I own thousands of dollars in, back in the days when I was an alcoholic. And uh, I've, I've got creditors showing up all the time. Some of them wanting to break my knees and some of them wanting to take me to court. But it's something that I'm constantly dealing with still to this day. And I said, well, there you go. Then you, you don't pass number one because there's something that can lay a hold of you. Here you are, you're teaching the word, you're, you're, you're leading people in the Lord and all of a sudden they show up and put you in handcuffs and you say, well, see you next week at Home Fellowship, you know, as they put you in handcuffs and, and you get taken away or, uh, you know, some creditor shows up at the door and, uh, you know, threatens to take your furniture and, you know, that would be a great stumbling block. Uh, to the church. So is there something that would, would take hold that would, in essence, hinder you, hinder the church? And uh, some try to translate this blameless as perfect. There's nobody perfect, and it's ridiculous. But there is a point where there's a maturity where there's not something obviously going to stumble you or stumble others. And then the next thing he says, the husband of one wife. Now, what does this not mean? This does not mean you can't be single and be a, uh, in the ministry. You don't have to be married. Paul wouldn't have qualified. Jesus wouldn't have qualified. The second thing, it's not saying that um, you could not have been on your second marriage. Sometimes the wife dies. And now you're married for a second time. It doesn't mean in some cases where the wife has ran off and just left the husband and the kids high and dry. It's happened more than once. It's happening actually a lot these days. Um, pretty regularly, I'll have somebody come up and say, not necessarily one of the leaders in our church, but um, somebody come up and say, hey, my wife left me. I can't talk her into it. She doesn't want anything. Don't want to talk to the kids. What do I do? Well, you know, get your eyes on the Lord, follow the Lord, and here they are five years later, and they're remarried, and now they want to be in the ministry. Well, you have, you've had two wives. Well, it's referring to one wife. And again, this is in a culture where they had multiple wives. If you go back in the Old Testament, they said, well, if you have more than one wife, and again, God gave a number of the commands in the Old Testament, not out of 
direction, but out of concession. Here's the people, they come in from this pagan Egyptian culture where they've been worshiping thousands of gods with all of these crazy pagan concepts. And, you know, God was able to bend them to a certain degree, but any farther, they they just weren't going to yield. And so he said, out of concession, if you have a number of different things dealing with um, slavery, dealing with divorce, dealing with a girl who's unmarried, your daughter who's unmarried in your house, how you deal with that. Again, these things we necessarily wouldn't wrestle with, but at that time, he had to put things in order that there was order in a community, not the way God wanted it, but out of concession, the way he was allowing it to be for a season. But we come to the New Testament. Oh, in the Old Testament, he said, so you can have more than one wife, but the wife who is less loved gets everything, and her kids get everything. So, you know, you look at Jacob. He had married the two daughters of Laban. And one of them he loved. He had worked for seven years for her. But remember, Laban put in the older sister in the honeymoon chambers. And he woke up in the morning going, ah, this isn't the one I married. Well, I thought you knew the older daughter had to get married first. Yeah, work another seven years. You can have Rachel. So he ended up having these two sisters. One he loved and one he put up with because he got stuck with her. So according to the law, the one that was loved, her kids got everything. The one that was not, or excuse me, the one that was not loved, excuse me, the one that was not loved, her kids got everything. And the wife that you loved, her kids got nothing. So there was a strong motivator. So the time you get to the time of Christ and to the New Testament time, pretty much in the Jewish culture, they didn't marry to more than one wife because they didn't want the wife that was less loved, her kids to get everything, and the wife you loved, her kids not to get anything. So God was very wise and shrewd in how he gave the concessions. But nevertheless, um, if there was, if you are married to more than one wife in a, in a situation um, of polygamy, and many cultures today have that, then you can never be an elder in the church. You can be a Christian, but you can't be an elder. But in this case, it literally means, this term, the husband of one wife, literally is translated a one-woman man. So what's it really referring to? It's referring to that you're focused on your wife. There are many guys who have a prowling eye. You know, they're married, but they're checking out every woman. They're married, but their passions are not honed. They're not in control. And so, in essence, their direction of loving their wife and caring for their wife and all of their sexual pressures and tensions are towards their wife. They're sort of, again, got the wondering eye. And and in that case, he's saying, no way. You don't want a pastor who's, who's letting his sexual passions go and, again, not focusing on loving the one wife. And then uh, the next thing is having a faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. The word faithful here is literally to believe. It's the word that's uh, translated uh, pistos, it's translated often faith, to believe. 
And so he's saying you need to have children that believe, believe in the Lord. They believe in the things you believe in, the, how you run your family, how you do it. And obviously, all kids grow to a point where they start having their own mind. This is part of the way it's supposed to be. So when they're ready to leave home, you're ready for them to leave home. <laughs> it works both ways. There's a reason the mommy, mama bird kicks them out of the nest. I'm sick of you, you little teenager. Out, you know. Uh, it's supposed to work that way or whatever, whatever age, 35. 35, you're out, whatever it is. Um, but it's okay when they get to that point. But there, there's the conversation you have to have with all the kids. And that is, you're under my roof. You've got to abide not only by what the scripture says, but by my convictions. So even though the Bible may not say, thou shalt not rent R-rated movies, in my house, you're not going to do that. Now, I understand when you leave here, you're going to do what you're going to do. But while you're under my roof, you're going to obey the standards that I live to. And you're going to live the way I want it. And that's, that's absolutely uh, unmovable. And so in the same way, hopefully a person has a leadership to lead his family. And, and what's that referring to? It's referring to lead him through the tough times. It's not saying you're going to have perfect kids. It's saying how do you deal with it when your kids aren't perfect. Okay? So in other words, um, you know, if you have kids, you know <laughs> that, uh, you know, you're just trying to tame the lion as long as you can until it gets out of the cage. Um, especially if you've had a strong-willed child, you know it's a battle from the day they were born until... Ever, I guess. I don't know. Um, but it's not so much that you have this strong-willed child and they're doing all kinds of crazy things. The thing is, is that you are faithful to stand in the gap. You're faithful to be the wall. You're faithful to continue your leadership even though uh, the kids may not be believing in the Lord. They may not be willing, willingly obedient. And uh, again, it's, it's a hard thing when you're in leadership because you sort of live in a glass house and everybody gets to see all the good but they also get to see all the bad and they get to see the struggles as well as the good times and it's meant to be that way when you really are saying I'm willing to be a leader in the church in essence you're saying I'm willing to move into the house of glass and Again, not that anybody's perfect, but what do you do when you do sin? I've had people come and say, man, I've you know, been a Christian four months. I've been trying to be such a great witness at work. And you know, the other day, this guy made me mad and I just cussed him out. And everybody's like, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to talk that. Now I can't even go back to work. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, no. This, this is exactly the way God is gonna use you. You're not perfect. And hopefully... Four years from now, you won't have that slip up. But the important thing is now that you go to God. You ask him for forgiveness. You go to the one you've offended. You've asked him to forgive you. And then you explain to him, I sinned. There's no excuse. But the Bible says, as I confess my sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sin. And I, I know he's forgiven me. I'm going to reap what I've sown. Okay, but at the same time, 
God has forgiven me. And so often that has led people to Christ because in their mind, if I ever go to church, I've got to be perfect from then on out and I know I can't be perfect so I'm not going to go to church. And that's not the gospel, is it? And so sometimes our slip-ups, our stumblings, our shortcomings can be used as a tool to shine Jesus better than our perfections. And so again, when it's talking about uh, a man, again, who has children, you've raised him up. And, you know, you parents, just teach your kids the word. You know, just read them the Bible. Get a, get a storybook Bible, and just from the day they're born, you know, I can remember holding one baby in this arm and having a two-year-old in this arm and having the four-year-old sitting next to me and, you know, sitting there and, and just reading, 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 reading the, the scriptures. And, and sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes they ask questions. It'll go two hours. I just plan on it going for five, ten minutes and reading a couple stories, praying with them. And of course, when they're young, how much do they want to hear stories? Like a thousand times a day. <laughs> you know, as much as you're willing to read, as much as willing they're listening to. So you take those, those informidable years and just milk them to the nth degree. And then as they start getting into the, you know, 10 years old, 11 in their teenage years, and I don't want to, I don't, you know, come on in, five minutes, sit down. You can have a frown on your face. You can pick your nose, whatever you want to do. But just sit there. We're going to read the story. I'm going to give a couple of comments. We're going to pray. And then you can go on and do whatever you're going to do. But, uh, you know, make that time. And, of course, that time changes, doesn't it? When they're smaller, they go to bed earlier. They get older, you know. Uh, instead of having your Bible study at 5 o'clock right after dinner or 6 o'clock, it's now 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> but you, you, you just... Keep fighting the fight. Keep wrestling the bull. Hang on to the horns and just keep wrestling it uh, until the kids are um, at the point that they, they know. You know, you don't want your kids to not know. I want them to know the whole counsel of God. They've, they've heard from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And I've started with my kids when they were young. I just told them, look, I know you're two years old, but one day you're gonna not wanna go to church with me not an option. When I go to church, you go to church, period. And I go to church a lot. I'm the pastor. Get used to it. So it, it, that's just life. And sure enough, you know, I just tell them that a few times a year. So, you know, when they get like nine years old, man, you know, I want to stay home and, you know, watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know what? Not an option. We go to church. Remember, I talked to you this when you were two years old and three years old and four years old, you know? And uh, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna be an option. And again, why? Because we teach the word here. So I'm teaching it at home. They're getting taught by the Sunday school teachers and by the junior high pastors and by the high school pastors. And, you know, there's that point where they're gone. They're gonna do what they will. But hopefully your leadership will grow. So you have a little leadership when they're babies and they're little guys and your ability to lead may be small, but they're small. But as they get older, your leadership has to grow. The skills, the vision, the ability to take the strong will of man and help to mold it uh, into the way it needs to go. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm not ready to write any book on it. <laughs> I just tell you, pray a lot and do the best you can and 
And uh, it's, it's enough. It really is. Um, and we can only do as good as we can do, right? We can't do any better than that. We just do the best we can do and pray like crazy. <laughs> and uh, some kids cause you to pray more than other kids. But uh, either way, it's good that you're praying. And then again, he, he says in particular, uh, dissipation. Uh, this word, ositia, is excess or riot. It, it's referring to moral values. And so again, that you don't have somebody living an immoral life. And again, why, why does it say that? Because you can't judge the heart. You can't judge what their motive is. You can't judge what they're thinking. But you can judge clear, excessive actions, right? And so if there's some clear, outward, excessive actions, those are the things you gotta say, that is unacceptable. That will not work here. And, uh, and so again, it's your choice. You're at the point in your life that you can live under the rules and the morals and the values and the way I follow God, or you can leave. But I, I cannot, as for me and my house, you know, we are going to serve the Lord. And whether you're doing that willingly or not, bow your head, <laughs> close your eyes, don't close your eyes, I don't care, but you're going to sit there while I pray and thank God for this food. You know, you may be rebellious and, you know, I've had every one of my kids tell me, if you made me go to church, when I leave this house, I'll never go to church again. It's like, fine. I mean, that's not my responsibility. (laughs) My responsibility is you go now while you're living here, you know. I think all my kids have told me, I'm going to show you I'll never be a Christian when I leave here. It's like, fine. I I can't, you know, that's between you and God. You know, I, I can't control that either. But... While you're under my rules, you're going to learn all there is about Christianity. Whether you follow it or not, that's up to you eventually. And, uh, but, you know, kids are, kids are a lot of fun. And uh, so I, I remember Renee, she's sitting back over there. She was four years old. I remember, time to go to bed, hon. I'm not going to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed yet. She sat there on the steps and said, you got two choices. I can spank your bottom and you go to bed or you can go to bed. Well, I'm not going to go to bed. Okay, and I give her a couple swats, and well, I'm going to bed, but I hate you. <laughs> oh, man, Cheryl just laughed and laughed. It was like, oh, boy, they're starting young. But uh, either way, you know, be the wall between them and a wild, wild world. Be the wall between them and morality. Keep them as innocent as you can. Keep them as naive as they can, as you can. You know, they're going to learn to be worldly wise about two seconds after, you know, they, they step into the world. But keep them as innocent and as pure and as naive of the things of evil in the world as long as you can. And give them the ability to, to grow in the Lord. And then insubordination. Again, being unruly. And this is the word again, hot-tempered. Um, being unsubmissive. In Galatians, it uses the term outburst of wrath. Uh, the works of the flesh are evident, and it gives a list, and one of it is the outburst of wrath. And then the works of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, is gentleness and goodness and self-control. And those are the things, again, that 
We have to demand. We, we cannot have that. We cannot allow that. You're cussing us out or you're punching a hole in the wall. We, we can't have that. This is where we want you to be, but why you're here, this is a, it's absolutely mandatory. And then in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And again, we talked about the elder and the bishop, interchangeable here. Um, again, blameless, so one, um, and then a steward of God, referring to, to fiscal matters, referring to, to money. And again, we don't want to be greedy. We don't want to be living for filthy lucre, as the Bible says. We want to live by faith and, and look for things that are spiritual. And this is a person who's basically gone through that. People, it seems like, that you know, I want to get it all. I want the big house and the big car and the nice clothes. And you get to the place at some point in your maturity where it's like, you know what? That's not worth living for. I just want to live for God and grow into him. And godliness with contentment is great gain. And again, they may not be perfect in this area. They may go through valleys and mountains through this area. But they come to the same conclusion each time. That I'm not going to be a greedy person living for earth. I'm going to be one focused on living on heaven. Living for heaven. And then again, not self-willed. This is an arrogant person, a stubborn person, a proud person. When I talk to leaders, I, I tell them when they're looking for to raise up other leaders, I just say there's just three things that have to be in place. You know, one is they're available. Some people just, you know what? They will show up an hour early to the movies, but you can't get them to show up one minute early to church. You know, you can get them to set through a four and a half hour football game or baseball game, no problem. But five minutes into the sermon, they are just, you know, ready to scream fire. Run out. There, there's, there's a place where they just haven't matured to know what's important in life and what is important in life. And again, they're not, doing, they're not living for self. There's a lot of people. I was just talking to a pastor today and, and very discouraged. And I just said, look, there is a group of people that come to church for their own selfish needs. For some it's just a lack of maturity in life. Some, it's just a lack of maturity in the Lord, but it's for self. And they're coming to, you know, suck whatever they can suck out of you and then spit you out and go to the next church or whatever they're going to do. They're not really here to grow in the Lord and to bless others. They don't want to give of themselves time-wise, financially, in serving people. It's, it's basically, it's a self-centered thing. They're going to hear new information, meet new people, hear new songs. And as soon as the newness is wore off to them, they're off doing the next thing. You can't focus on that. You've got to focus on those who are here to grow in the Lord and, and to bless others, to serve others, to give of themselves. That's the church. You could have a church of 5,000 people, but really only 100 people really have that heart. You could have a church of 200 people and 199 of them that way. How do you, how do you really count how big a church is? It, you count by the people that are committed to one another, that are willing to serve and to give and to love and to lay their lives down for one another. That's the church. And so, 
again, you don't want a person who's trying to get into leadership for his own gratification. I, I, you know, if I'm going to be at the church, I want to be in charge. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to go to a Bible study, I want to teach it. So, you know, and it's the wrong spirit. It's the wrong attitude. But number one, they've got to be available. I was mentioning the three things. Number two, they've got to be able. Most people are able. That's typically not the issue. And then the third thing is, are they teachable? And there's always people, you ask those three things. It's like, you know, they won't make themselves to be available to be a servant. They may make their self available to do what they want to do. They'll get here as early as they want to get here for their own self-gratification. They'll leave as early as they want to leave for their own self-gratification. They'll come as suits them for their own self-gratification. You, 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 don't, you don't want to invest time in those people. Maybe they'll grow out of it. Maybe they won't. But the other thing is, are they teachable? Do you have people that are, are willing to submit to one another and to listen to one another? And uh, again, it's not that self-willed individual is gonna be a team player, is gonna be somebody that can really grow in the deep things of God. And then we see also in verse seven, not quick-tempered. Okay, again, the works of the flesh are hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. You want a person that's full of goodness and gentleness and self-control. Perfect? No. But they're heading in that direction. In Proverbs fifteen eighteen, it says, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allies contention. In Proverbs sixteen thirty two. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his own spirit than he who takes a city. So again, somebody that can control their anger, control their temper. So in Proverbs 19.11, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. Again, there's a, there's a maturity that that's understands that you know, people are people. And non-Christians, they act like non-Christians because they're non-Christians. And, and we have to, to get over that. And uh, I'll tell you that people push my buttons every time when it's driving, you know. Especially they cut you off or whatever. But many years back, I had a guy and he just obviously cut me off. And I pulled up next to him to give him a dirty look. And he just looked at me like, peace, man. I totally blew it. I just, it just dissolved me and I just realized, you know, how many times have I done that this week? And, you know, it, it happens. Intentionally, you're in a hurry, you're being inconsiderate. <laughs> Whatever the reason is at the moment, people are people. And it's a glory to overlook that transgression. In Proverbs twenty nine twenty two, an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. I was at a pastor conference in Vista several years back and we were there, we had a break and all of a sudden this truck cuts this other truck off and this guy about 35 year old just starts pounding on the window of this other truck. And there's this old man in there and the guy's, I mean, he's just, his hand is bloodied and he's breaking bones in his hand but he is gonna break through that window. And it's cracking and it's just getting ready to break and all of a sudden, there's this explosion. And the guy who's hitting the window just goes down and blood starts going everywhere. 
And what it was is this guy who had been working all night as a security guard was exhausted. <laughs> he was on the freeway. Cut the guy off. Absolutely did. But this guy just had road rage and just clicked a button and just chased this guy for miles. There was all kinds of other cars that followed him because they knew something was going to go bad and they wanted to be a witness. So finally, he cut him off right there in front of Calvary Chapel Vista and and the old man is there just like going, look, dude, calm down. But the guy couldn't hear it and he had his gun with him from, he was a security guard. So as soon as he saw this guy is not gonna back down, as soon as he was gonna break the window, he just shot him. And uh, again, I mean, how many times have we gotten mad and been just absolutely ashamed of ourselves later for being so mad? I was at a, our kids' little league baseball game when they were, uh, they were small. I mean, it, was, it wasn't T-ball, but it was the one right above that. And these parents are screaming and arguing. I mean, the kids are like six years old. And we're sitting there, and the lady, just a few down to us, all of a sudden just <laughs> falls over. The lady from the other side came over, found a, a metal bar on the ground, and just came over and hit the other lady in the back of the head. Knocked her out. You know, over a six-year-old, I mean, I could understand if they were 10 years old, but I'm six, come on. Um, <laughs> But again, I, I've got to admit, I've been at sporting events. I've gotten there. I've, I've been just, you know, that's, you didn't get fouled, you know, screaming at the guy, you know, I've been there. I, I know how easy that is. And of course, later you're going, it was such a stupid game. And they were losing by 20 points anyway. What's the matter? But uh, anyway, be that person that can govern his own spirit. And then again, not given to wine. The word there, given, is the word alongside. That you're not a person that has to be alongside uh, alcohol. And, you know, I, I can tell you, you ask probably every other person here, they can tell you that their family can't do anything without alcohol being there. They can't watch a football game. They can't go to a football game. They can't. I, I've, had, I've had ladies tell me, my uncle, my cousin, my brother won't come to our wedding unless we have an open bar. And we told them there's not going to be any alcohol. They just won't come to the wedding. They live next door to me. They're not coming to the wedding because they're not having alcohol. And then usually they'll show up, but they'll drink, you know, a couple six-packs in the car and then come to the wedding. Zonkered. You know, again, there's something wrong if you have to be intoxicated to endure um, whatever it is or to feel like you're not really having a good time unless you're somewhat buzzed. That's a very much, no doubt, an issue in Crete. And an issue in many, many situations today. And then again, not violent, sort of redundant, what we had just talked about, but not a violent person. And not greedy for money, again, similar, but uh, sort of the other side of the coin from being a good steward or not hot-tempered. And then in verse 8, last verse we'll look at tonight here, but hospitable. The word hospitable, what's that sound like? Sounds like hospital, doesn't it? Or hospitality. This is that Greek word. It's philo xenos. Philo is the word for love, brotherly love or affection. And xenos is stranger. It's a affection towards strangers. That again, it's a willingness to take people into your home, a willingness to care for people. And... Uh, Again, there are people that just say, man, my house is off limits. I don't want anybody coming in my house or whatever. 
And it just can't be. You're going to be a leader. You've got to be willing to open your house. And, you know, when you open your house to a home fellowship, um, you're going to have broken things and your carpet's going to get muddied and kids are going to color on the walls and all those things. I mean, you just have to say people are more important than things. And uh, I fixed my house up and they tore it down, but I'll fix it up again. Such is life. And, uh, you know, I've got anywhere from 50 to 70 college students in my house every Thursday night. And, you know, we just sort of recoup once the tornado leaves. And uh, it's okay. Spill it on the carpet. Break the couch. It's no big deal. We've been doing this for as long as, you know, me and Cheryl have known each other about 30 years. We've been doing it ever ever since. It's it's not a big deal. And uh, again, some people make their house they're God. They make it like a museum. You get white couches and white carpets and they got crystal, everything set and everywhere. And, you know, you just got to ask yourself, what's, what's your priority? And, um, we, we try to tone it down, but every year we probably, honestly, at least six, if not nine months out of the year, have somebody staying with us at some time. Um, always. It's just a, a reality. We have uh, a college girl from the coming down and staying with us right now for a, a few weeks. And then January, we have Phil Mesker and his family, five kids, all coming for a couple of weeks. And we love it. We just love it. And again, it's that God just gave us that heart of hospitality. And it's essential if you're gonna be a leader. You say, well, that's sort of a trivial, petty thing. No, it, it really does speak to the heart of a minister. And then a lover of what is good. Again, there's a a developing in your heart to hate what God hates to the degree he hates it, to love what God loves to the degree he loves it. In Romans 12, 9, it says, let us be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And I love that word, cling. It's grabbing on and not letting go, clinging uh, to what is good. And then Philippians 4, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, all good things. These do. And the peace or the God of peace will be with you. See, there's Paul. I mean, he's such a good example. He says all these good things, these things that are pure, these things that are just, these things that are lovely, these, all these good things that you saw in me and Timothy and Luke and Titus and Silas, these things, if you copy our behavior, the God of peace will be upon your life. Boy, that's the ultimate leader, isn't it? And that's where we all are trying to attain to, every leader. And then we also see sober-minded or a sensible person, a person that's reasonable and rational. And so often people in the world, I mean, they may be a top-notch lawyer or they may be somebody who's a millionaire businessman, but they're just not a reasonable person. Their expectations of others are too high and they're complaining about people. You know, the, la- the worst thing you can ever do for your kids is complain about the people of God. I- I've had so many people tell me, you know, I'm 45 years old, but I didn't come to church for 30 years because I grew up as a kid 
the moment we got in the car after church, the parents sat and started criticizing everything. The worship, the sermon, you know, Mary and the new dress she had, which was ugly, and so and so, and their breath was bad, and you know, and they're just sitting there picking people. And and unknowingly, they basically said there is no value in the church. There is no value in the people of God. And they grew up with a just a bad attitude, just saying there's no value in it. They're a bunch of idiots. My parents had told me that my whole life growing up. The church is stupid, people are stupid, everything's has no, it doesn't have the value it's to have. And so again, to be a reasonable person, not to have a high expectation of people that you get disappointed. And at the same time, to, to be reasonable, to be able to logically work through uh, situations. And again, you know, I was just talking to a pastor today, the same one I mentioned earlier, and he was ready to quit. You know, and the reason was is that, you know, People were just hard on him and hard on his wife and hard on his kids. And, and he just came to the point just going, you know, I, I don't need this. He, he's, a, he's a computer genius and makes a lot of money. I, I don't need this. And I just had to sort of talk him down, just going, look, you know, this is what you signed up for. <laughs> people are brutal. And a lot of carnal people are really brutal. But it's okay. This is it. Keep your eyes on the Lord and keep loving people and that's our whole life. We see people start at A and we get to see them go to Z and you know, you keep loving them when you're at M. It's okay. That's, that's just people and you're not gonna find anything better. Just love on them, keep teaching them the word and, and again, being reasonable to understand. And then just, again, it's the word uh, for righteous, to be a righteous person and then a holy person being a righteous and a holy person, again, with self-control. Talked about that. So notice those three things. Just, holy, self-controlled. Just or righteous refers to towards men. Holy refers towards God. And self-control refers to yourself. Be righteous towards men. Be holy towards God. And be self-controlled towards yourself. One last verse and we'll finish here. In James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. The wisdom that does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, then it's gentle. Here's a real important one. Willing to yield, to submit one towards another. Full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As believers, we want our wisdom to be from above, not of this earth. And again, what a beautiful way to put the heart of God and the heart that he wants for all his people. But those who are leaders need to be 
And it needs to be in their life and abounding. Matthew Henry said this, How unfit are those to govern a church who cannot govern themselves. How unfit are those who govern a church who cannot govern themselves. And that's the perfect way just to sum it all up. It's a person who has come to govern their passions, to govern their anger, to govern their finances, to govern the family, to govern their mind, to govern their house. And we all have lust and passion screaming from us. But the Holy Spirit helps us to bring those things unto submission. Amen? And Lord, we thank you again for tonight. And we thank you for looking at your heart, your mind for every one of us. But those who desire the work of a a bishop, an elder, a leader in the church, let these things be in them and abounding. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, to, to pursue, whether it's to be a leader of our own family or a leader to disciple one person, Lord, let us, let us continue to race towards that mark, to aim in such a way to, to hit the target and to finish the race. Purify us through your word tonight, Lord. The things we talked about with family, anger in our own lives, in the church, Lord, just purify us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said...